five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was the uh, Great Spirit with Randy California on lead vocals, Jay Ferguson on backing vocals, and Ed Cassidy on drums. I think Ed Cassidy was Randy California's stepdad or something like that. Uh, One of my favorite bands from the 1960s. I love Spirit. They've got a lot of... uh, Catchy tunes. Nature Says is a great, another great song. A little bit different than the uh, spirited, upbeat, I got a line on you, babe. Kind of a connection today with uh, the title of the show, which is Biden and Harris in the crosshairs. A lot of really weird and interesting things are happening uh, inside the so-called White House, which isn't really the White House anymore. Whether we can agree on the fact that it's a, a a stage, like a figurative stage, or it's a literal stage, uh, something's not right there. And what's really interesting is that if it's not right, then how can the Congress and the Senate go along with the charade of what's taking place or not taking place in the White House? It's an interesting question. We're going to kind of get into that today. Just try to catch up on what's going on. There's been a very interesting turn of events with the New York Times and Hunter Biden because they ran a story about the Hunter Biden laptop. And during a time of severe crisis, in terms of the economy, in terms of the mishandling of Afghanistan, which by the way was completely uh, intentional. It wasn't like there was the the inexperience and the absolute malfeasance of the administration showing up. It was, that was intentional. So that was a crisis and we just kind of moved on from that. And there are people that are still there in Afghanistan and they're not able to get out. And it's like one of those things, you just kind of of move on from the event, which is uh, not great. I think I'm gonna close this door behind me. I've been trying to, I actually was gonna do this outside. As you can see, I'm not in my normal studio. And I was gonna do this outside because there's lots of birds chirping and everything really kind of a lovely sound, but I have a Southern exposure and I have the, uh, uh, the tunnel of light experience over here. 
Just step into the light and you'll be, you'll be fine. And then I have this shit. So I'll be right back. a little better right it's, it's not like i have god calling me over my right shoulder although it is a doorway it is a portal it's, it's a pretty nice place here i'll give you a visual so um, that's where i sleep right there that's the couch and then over here we have a little kitchenette there yep of course the uh, ever-present saturn black cube so it's not bad not bad for a few days. It's interesting being a part of beach culture. Beach culture is ubiquitous everywhere. Wherever you go, it's pretty much the same. People wearing tie-dye shit, um, looking a little leathered and a little weathered. And these are the people that I think live here or spend a lot of time here. And um, it's the same everywhere. You go to a beach, you get beach people that kind of dress like beach people and uh, kind of feel like beach people. Doesn't matter if it's the, maybe a little bit, maybe you'll find it to be a little different in say Washington state. Cause there's not, there's not a lot of beach in Washington state, even though it's on the coast, they have ocean shores and that's pretty much about it. Everything else gets really rocky, but there's, there is a, like a kind of a standard beach person. What do they call them? Beachcombers. Those are the people that actually go up and down the beach looking for shit, right? The beach is just right over there. I would do a show from the beach, but I don't think I could do it. It's about as close as I get. Tomorrow, we'll be uh, hanging out in another location, and you'll get to meet Gen Z. I got to meet them yesterday. So ostensibly, the reason I'm here in uh, Port Aransas, Texas, on spring break is because uh, technically I'm a chaperone for my son's crew and um, they have a place down the, down the street and I'll be there tomorrow. In fact, I'm going over there after the show and we're going to, I'm going to cook them breakfast. So uh, tomorrow you'll get to meet Gen Z. I got to meet them yesterday. I got to say to a, to a person, initial kind of, you know, handshake moment. I was impressed. I was impressed. They had, uh, they looked me right in the eye. Everybody shook my hand. Good firm handshake. I'm like, okay, we're off to a good start here. And uh, it'll be interesting. There's a, there's a kid. It was not a kid. These are all young men now. I can't even really call them kids. But there's a young man who, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. Uh, I think it was about two years ago. And my son was at a sleepover at uh, one of the one of the boys house and so they were talking shit about each other's parents and fathers and so they know that my son doesn't live with me and i'm kind of the, i was kind of the mystery guy at that point because they had some contact with his stepfather some at least they knew about it. i'm not sure how much contact they actually had so they asked him so what does your what does your dad do and he said, uh, well, he's an astrologer. What's his name? So they, they, they looked me up and uh, they found that I had this stream on YouTube 
so one, one, of, one of his friends started listening to my stream like all the time. And it was kind of weird for my son because he would be talking to his friend. You're going to meet him tomorrow. His name is Tanner. I think he's kind of psyched about being on the show. Um, so my son would be on the phone with him and he'd hear me in the background, which must have been a little strange. Right. So that's a good start. I mean, it, it gives it gives me some hope for these Gen Z kids. And uh, you're going to get to meet them face to face tomorrow. So let me meet and greet you. Maybe not so face to face, but let's check in with uh, you guys and see where you're at. With the chat. Uh, Lisa K, what's going on, Queen Lisa? Empath. Yes, we're all Irish today. It is. See, I'm actually wearing green. Believe it or not, this is teal. And I have some green in my, my cap bill. And normally I can't wear green because I have a green screen. So, yeah, go Irish. And I am Irish on my mother's side. Very uh, strong Irish connection. Uh, there she is, lovely and talented, Dr. Joan S., uh, Kabuki Theater's here. TJ, what's going on, Tomas? Uh, let's see, CC Jones, Fran. Hi, Fran. JJ. I love saying that. JJ. <laughs> Ryan, my man. What's going on, Mr. Introspective Woodward? You know, I, I, I was thinking about Ryan last night. And to be fair, a few other people. And... Um, you know, I know I could come across hard on Trump. And I know a lot of you had a lot invested in Trump. And I understand why. And, I, and so my comments the other day uh, about Trump and Q and the truth movement were more about what uh, Pockets of the Future was saying about the truth movement and how the truth movement was set up to fall into this operation, the psychological operation. And, you know, anytime you have something that is true, they will, they will actually leave you a few crumbs because they will tell, it's called the revelation of the method. They will tell you exactly what they're doing. And so when they have an operation like Q, and I do believe Q is an operation. When they have an operation like Q, what they do is they tell people what they're doing. And they give them a little taste of the truth. And for a lot of people who hadn't gone down any rabbit holes, it, it was like somebody had already just dug them and then gave them a little miner's hat and then pointed. And they were right there, just come on over here. We already dug it, here's your hat, just go. And because prior to Q, it took a lot. First of all, you had to know what you were looking for. That's number one. Uh, number two, you had to have the uh, desire. There was a word I was looking for. But you had to have the desire. You had to have the, uh, the inner call or the call to go down that rabbit hole. And that's not a comfortable place for a lot of people. And what was interesting about the Q movement is that they didn't do it alone. That was, see, that was the big key. 
that was the big key because a lot of times what happens when you go down rabbit holes, you're the only one that's going down the fucking rabbit hole. So when you start to talk to your friends about these things, they think you're nuts. They're like, Jesus, you're nuts. Come back over here, have a fake stake in the matrix. So it discourages people to go down the rabbit because you can feel really abandoned and really alone and feeling like, I don't want to be ostracized from my group. But when Q happened, you were alone. You had all these other people that were doing the same thing simultaneously. And a lot of them were first time rabbit hole people. You have baseball moms, not necessarily soccer moms, but base, baseball moms are cooler than soccer moms. And I know there's some soccer moms probably listening here and I, I don't want to take anything away from you. Being, being a good mom and being a soccer mom. But soccer is just un-American. I'm sorry, it's un-American. And I watched soccer games. I went. I had tickets to the San Jose Earthquakes. I actually saw Pele play when I was a kid. How many people can say that? It's kind of like saying, I saw Jimi Hendrix play. I saw Pele. I hung out with soccer players. They're my buddies in high school. So it's not like I detest soccer, but it is ultimately an un-American sport. Baseball is truly an American sport. Although I do believe that they somehow managed to get some of the uh, basics of baseball from the Algonquin, I think. And there was a game that they played or a sport that called rounders, which is very similar to baseball. And um, baseball is though, is totally Freemasonic. It's just all fucking Freemasonic. It's there's something I, I really discovered some interesting characters in baseball over the last few days. Especially these two pitchers, Trevor Bauer and Max Scherzer, they're fucking nuts. I'll do a thing on Trevor Bauer one of these days. He's really interesting. I'd love to interview Trevor Bauer, although he's considered to be a complete asshole. But I'm gonna do I want to do something on Trevor Bauer because he's really fast. Like he transcends sports. And I know some of you go, Oh my god, here he goes. He's talking about sports again, or something like, Oh my god, here he goes. He's talking about music again. But usually it's relevant, and I try to bring it back to what we're getting into. So bringing it back to the whole Q thing, it, it was like a mass awakening. And unfortunately, uh, it was manipulated. I think this is just my two cents. And that's not to say that there wasn't some truth in there because they always do that. Like pop, Comet ping pong pizza. I think, th I think that place is uh, toxic and whatever they leaked out from the WikiLeaks stuff, I believe it. I totally believe it. You look at those guys, you look at those players, James Alafontes, his buddy who was deeply involved in the Hillary Clinton campaign. And you have the Podesta pictures. I mean, the whole thing is just a creep show. And of course, there's tunnels underneath Washington. We know that they're there. We don't have to speculate. They are there. And there's probably tunnels with common ping pong. Um, yeah, I think that there is a there there. I think there's a there there with adrenochrome. I think there's a there there with trafficking. I don't think these things are speculative. But what they do is they bring them out into the open. And they do this all the time. They bring them out to the open. They get people all frothy with it. And then it takes on this momentum. And there is crazy momentum with the whole Q thing. 
And then it becomes a belief system unto itself. And that's when it gets really dangerous because that's when people are prime, prime for the picking. You know, as soon as I start this show, all the, all the noise stops. It's a little too bright out there though. I really do want to do a show outside. I miss doing shows underneath the tree in um, Fredericksburg. I love that tree. I love that outside area. I loved hearing the birds. It was great. So maybe when spring rolls around here, we can start doing some outside shows from the new location. I do have a big tree there. It's just a matter of the uh, internet signal. I have to see what my internet signal is like by the big tree in Fredericksburg. So what happens with Q or what happened with Q is the same thing that happened with the Red Scare in communism. So they bring out the red threat and um, we have Joe McCarthy. And again, it always blows my mind that uh, Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's lawyer. Like he was Joe McCarthy's legal aid in this whole thing. And Roy Cohn has got to be one of the most slimy, unctuous creeps that's walked the face of this earth. But you know what? He was unapologetically slimy and unctuous. In a weird way, you have to kind of respect slimy and unctuous people who don't pretend to be anything other than slimy and unctuous. They are who they are. Doesn't mean I want to hang out with them, but there's no cognitive distance between who they are and what they do. And I guess they're living their truth in a weird way. That's the whole thing about being authentic. People say, oh, just be authentic, be authentic. Well, if you're, if you're really slimy and unctuous, I mean, that's really who you are. You might as well be authentic. So what they did is they brought out the red threat and then they started to discredit Joe McCarthy. Because he all of a sudden thought, wow, this is, let's really go after it. Let's really go after it. Let's go deeper. Let's go after the corruption. And they cut him off at the knees. They're like, sorry, dude, you were a useful dupe for a while. We exposed this. We named a few bad actors, some people in Hollywood. And that's about it. We got our scapegoats. Now we can put this to bed and move on. That's what they did. They exposed the level of communism inside of the entertainment industry, not really inside the government. They didn't really do a good job at outing people in the government who were commies, and there were plenty. They didn't do that. So they got a few sacrificial lambs from Hollywood, Dalton Trumbo, Paul Robeson, a few others, Sean Penn's dad. He was there. He was part of that. He got banned, came back. They all came back. I'm not sure if Paul Robeson ever came back, but they all came back. Dalton Trumbo was one of the many people that has fingerprints on the uh, Planet of the Apes script. Rod Serling, another one. I think about three or four people. And Trumbo was a very, very um, uh, active Hollywood screenwriter. Anyway, so what that's that's what they did with Q. I mean, they they played the the red threat bait and switch game. We'll bring it out to the public. We'll let the public get very worked up and incensed. We'll have a few 
a few uh, clay pigeons. We'll knock them down and then we'll, we'll shut this down. And then we'll discredit McCarthy and then everything else that happens after that. It's like, ha, ha, ha. Remember, remember the red threat. Remember there's a, you know, a red under every bed, which is, and I've talked about this before, which is really the symbolism of uh, invasion of the body snatchers. That's what that movie's about. It's, it's about communism and that there's one under every bed. So these pods come in and they take the life of these people that they recognized as normal Americans, but they weren't so normal anymore, nor were they Americans. So that was a big, big thing back then. And uh, they did the same thing with Q. It's like, okay, we're going to set this up and we're going to ultimately have this movement, this movement, not this movement, this, they'll have this, we'll have this movement be discredited. And we'll bring out somebody like Buffalo Shaman who became the face of the movement very quickly. And, you know, you know, Buffalo Shaman is a weird guy. Jake, Jake Angeli, he's a weird guy because he just comes out of nowhere and he's got all these books and tracks that he's made on Amazon and he's got everything covered from 9-11 to multidimensional timelines. Like if you wanted the face of the Q movement, that's your guy. And he's also talking about Christianity and says, remember he said a prayer inside the, uh, what was it, the chamber of the Senate? So he, he, he's got this thing covered from all these different angles. He's pro-Trump. Um, he's got this weird kind of proto-shaman kind of vibe. So people who are into like Native American stuff or, or uh, indigenous practices or shamanism, they're like, oh, yeah, this guy's interesting. Then he's got the American thing going on. Then he's got the multidimensional thing going on. Then he's got the conspiracy thing going on. Then he's got the Christianity thing going on. He was very articulate. He was very, and he had a pretty tremendous energy when he would do these events. And I looked at his chart. He actually had a really interesting chart, but who was he? Where did he come from and where did he go? There's a commonly held belief that he's in prison, but do we really know? We don't really know. He could be anywhere. He could be mind wiped and put into a new position, new role somewhere else, which I think does happen. So they had, they had their figure, they had their figure head, literally they had their figure head. And what is, what, what he, what was he wearing? He was wearing a bull hat. You know, he was wearing this, this hat that had horns and, and, and it looked like, it looked like, um, that hat that Fred and Barney wore on the Flintstones, they were, they were part of some group, some society. Here, let me show you this, where it gets kind of interesting. By the way, if you're listening to the uh, podcast, you can be here now watching these visuals. 
on 15minutesofflame.com. That's with an OV. And uh, you can be seeing this, but we welcome you anyway, as you're listening without the, uh, without the visuals. So let me show you something that I thought was quite interesting. Now, when I, when I first ran across this one image, it had to do with a different kind of connection to what I'm about to show you. I just have to find the right one. Uh, and then we had the Buffalo Shaman, and then it became something else. The Illuminati cards are pretty amazing in, in how they have managed to somehow capture here. This is what I'm talking about. Somehow managed to capture this synchronistic zeitgeist. And I just have to find this one. I had it here. I just want to make it bigger. There we go. So this is uh, Fraternal Orders. And we see this guy, you know, wearing what looks like to be a combination of a fez from the Shriners with these uh, bullhorns. And I think on the inside of the uh, Shriner's hat, it's a triangle with, um, I think, an eye at the top. And I have no idea what he's got in his hand. Uh, and so the guy here is, he's black. And he's wearing a purple robe. And, of course, we looked at the connection between... Um, the color purple and the purple revolution. This is kind of interesting, right? But look at the hat, because this is straight out of Jake Angeli, Buffalo Shaman. Now, let me show you who I think this person is connected to. He's like a, a cipher between uh, Jake Angeli and the other guy. And I talked about this a long time ago, a long time ago. So this is so weird. Uh-oh. Something went wrong. Let me just show this to you. There's a pl there's plenty of these pictures. I want to get a good one though. Let me see about this. This is a good one. Let me see. I'll pull this one up. Here, I'm just going to go. All right, so just remember that image. Whoops. No, there it was. Just remember that image. So this is Tracy Martin. Brother Tracy Martin, District Grand Master. You got the nice little apron and the gloves. There he is on the right-hand side. Notice the Fez. Jay-Z. Jay-Z's a 
He's a Prince Hall Boulay Mason. Tracy Martin is uh, Trayvon Martin's dad. So back in the day when I saw that Illuminati card and I was doing a lot of stuff on the Trayvon Martin uh, incident, which is really bizarre. It kicks everything off. Trayvon Martin, in my estimation, is a ritual sacrifice and kicks off the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement. He becomes the first martyr. And it's an interesting connection between Martin and martyr. And there's this weird rumor that uh, Dick Cheney got his heart, right? Like right after Trayvon Martin dies, just days after Dick Cheney gets a new heart. Possible? Maybe. So when you take Tracy Martin and you stick the, uh, the buffalo horns on the Fez hat, you, you get like a cipher between Tracy Martin and Jake Angeli, the buffalo shaman. So, and the whole idea, right, with that head, the subtext is that you've been buffaloed. And what does being, being buffaloed mean? It means you've been led astray. That's, to me, that's what that head represented. That the, the, whether it was intentional or not, that was the symbolism. And that became the sacrificial cow, although it was a buffalo, right? This, this uh, animal which roamed freely across the plains of America, and this is another metaphor, roamed freely across the plains of America, and that was nearly wiped out of existence and then put into pens. So the symbol of the land and freedom and this connection to indigenous cultures, which more or less had a very different relationship with the buffalo. Although I'm sure if they had guns, they would have killed a lot more. But that's another uh, story altogether. Um, but there you go. It's like, okay, it's another symbol. You know, the buffalo doesn't roam anymore. And that's what we experienced with him. Like it was all of a sudden, he became the literally the figurehead of the Q movement. And there are a lot of other people that were in that place with him who are no longer, they're, they're, not, they're not in jail. And some of those guys were pointed out to me by Emily Moyer as being connected to this weird underground um, alt-right movement in Maryland. Tos I think it's Towson. And I, one of the guys had a gym, still has a gym. I called him and I, and I asked for some information and he laughed and he hung up on me. So who were those guys and what were they really about? Pro they're, probably, they're probably some kind of intel, either FBI, who knows, but they were there. Nothing happened to them. There's multiple pictures of them, but they got, even the name Jake, like you get jaked. Getting Jake means you get fucked over. So you got buffaloed and you got jaked. And he was the guy that was essentially going to be slaughtered. He was the sacrifice. He was the ritual sacrifice for the Q movement. 
And again, I, I think that there was truth inside of the Q movement. They were giving people truth. They were giving them untruths as well, which is where it got tricky for me. Because I could see where what they were talking about was leading people astray and was creating a bit of a distraction. And it became a spiritual and religious movement under Trump. I don't think there's any denying that. It was this weird intersection where people that were Christians and people that were proto-New Agers could kind of meet in the middle, which is not really a bad intersection. If If you're asking me, it's not a bad intersection. It's actually... It's actually groups that I think should have more in common and less rules and regulations about divinity and reality. And so they, there was, this, again, this weird intersection. And then the hammer drops, uh, Buffalo Shaman goes to prison. You got a bunch of other people that are in there too. And that's when everything just completely goes south for the Q movement. And it's unfortunate because there are a lot of people who are really good people. And what they did is they latched onto the truths that were being um, circulated. And then you can, so that whole thing is an entity unto itself apart from Trump, but then it's connected to Trump. And it becomes part of the Trump cosmology and the Trump movement. It is the organizing principle in a lot of ways that's behind the Trump movement. It's not traditional conservative corporate right-wingers. They want no part of Trump. Because Trump has struck this chord with the Vox Populi, the, the common man. And those are political elites and they, and they hate the common man. They have nothing in common with the common man. So they didn't like Trump. They didn't like the movement. They wanted it to go away. They just wanted their traditional conservative talking points, whatever they were. They were dominated by the neocons in a time of war or crisis, so be it, which is kind of where we are now. But they don't want to, and there was, there were weird periods of time where for a while, Mitch McConnell and even Lindsey Graham were, were backing Trump, but then they stabbed him in the back especially Mitch McConnell, because Trump gave his Chinese uh, spy wife fucking job inside of his White House, inside the Trump administration. Plum job. And what does he do? Sticks a dagger on his back. But that's politics. That's how politics works. If you have any other illusions about politics, you're just, you're uh, wet behind the ears, as they say. Politics is a nasty, nasty game really nasty and you have to be willing to cut somebody's throat even somebody that you theoretically like that happens so it's not for the faint of heart and that's why not everybody gets into it only the the most compromised and sociopathic people get into politics so there's there's some people with good intentions don't get me wrong i actually think chip roy is a good guy he seems to be on the right side of most things but nobody's clean. Nobody's completely um, free of the web and ensnarement. So I just wanted to 
you, you know, just come back to that. And I just, again, because I know a lot of you were invested in the Q, the whole Q thing. And as far as Trump goes, I, I think that this idea that a person could be proud to be an American again was novel and it was refreshing. It was like this breath of spirit. And people looked around and they said, yeah, man, you know, we've been on the sidelines for a long time and we need to rekindle these ideas and these values. And I think that, you know, the, there's a lot of truth. And, and for me, there's a lot of beauty in people who can commit to that and just go all in, regardless of whatever kind of landmines might be there. And I really um, commend their commitment to doing that and to still doing that in their own way. Because not a lot of people are, and not a lot of people can. So if you're still holding a place for this idea of America as being a great place and a great country, I certainly um, not only honor, but support your uh, intentions around that and your continued pursuit of that in your everyday life and in your public life, whatever. And it, it's always been an interesting experience for me because I was really disillusioned with America for a very long time because it's hard to see shit. Once you see things, you can't unsee things. And the, the ability to replace the things that you had seen with something that's different so that you can have a different experience about what it is to be an American is, is not easy, especially again, when you can see sort of what's going on behind the curtain and feeling like whatever you're witnessing is compromised and potentially won't end well. And that was, that was kind of hard you know, for, for me to, again, as somebody who has a slightly cynical view of the politics and the corporate machinery of America. I don't have a cynical view of the people. That's a very different uh, calculus as Joe Biden was. He used to the fucking word calculus the other day. It's like, what chip is he running? Anyway, because I do believe that the American people are good people. I've said this before, and I've come across a lot of them, a lot of different stripes and colors and um, creeds. I know that sometimes I can be hard on some particular groups or certainly a particular place in the Middle East that has a very strong hold over the minds and hearts of a number of people around the world that I think needs to be re-examined. I think all religions need to be re-examined. I'm not saying that we have to wipe out religions, but they need to be re-examined. And does the religion that you practice and the religion, the rituals that you practice, do they really align with where we're headed or where we need to go? Or are they limiting? And do they give you with any particular religious group um, a free pass in some ways. 
Like if you just follow your observances and your rituals and punch your devotional clock, does that somehow give you an exemption because of the things that you do? And somehow it, it, um, validates your experience with that group, whatever that group is. And if you're worth your salt, you will look at your group. You will look at your faith. You will look at who and what you're involved with. And nothing's perfect. So you may say, you know what? It's not perfect, but it works for me. and gives me a sense of semblance and order in my life. Well, that's fine. But I still think that if you're really invested in the truth, you will go to those places where you will face uncomfortable truths about your belief system and uh, how it's been practiced. And not only how it's been practiced, but the people that practice the same belief system as you, what they do with their power. If you're not having that kind of internal dialogue inside of yourself, then you're not looking for the truth and you're not looking to be free. You're, 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 you're holding on to a lifeboat. And I get it. These are very uncertain times. So I wouldn't necessarily blame anybody from abandoning their lifeboat. It was, um, it was kind of like that young woman that we talked to in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine. And, uh, you know, she didn't care whether or not the government was corrupt. She didn't care at that point. She didn't care if Zelensky was a puppet and an actor. All she wanted was her life back and some semblance of um, order and normalcy. And she was that person that looked at the uncomfortable truth around the Zelensky regime in Ukraine. She'd probably be left in the cold and wouldn't have the ability to have a meal or have support. This is what happens. It's easier to do these things in a time where, where there is no crisis. But when there is a crisis and you feel as if, or a person feels as if, if they stand out, that they will not be able to benefit from the resources that their group affords them. And that's true. You will be cut out. So it's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult path to go down. But if we have any chance of being in this world, we have to do it. But getting back to the American thing, I think it's important to connect with that spirit. Because it's, it's the, and it gets really hard, right? Because now all of a sudden we want to talk about how great we were in World War fucking two. Really? a war that we got conned into fighting and fighting for the Russians. Ultimately, we were fighting for the Soviets. That's who we were fighting for. And how'd that work out? And I'm not saying we should have fought for the Germans either because ultimately we funded both sides of that war. The American manufacturers were on both sides of the Soviet socialist Demo social Democrat, the socialists and social Democrats. They build up both sides. But was that really a great war? What about World War I? Was that really a great war? I mean, so is our country tied to the greatness of these wars and these sacrifices? I hear this all the time. 
oh, they sacrificed for our freedom. No, they didn't really sacrifice for our freedom. I think this idea that if we didn't jump into the war that, uh, that Germany was going to lose needs to be really re revisited and reexamined. And that the whole world would be under the, the yoke of the Third Reich. Well, the subtext of that is, you know, again, uh, Project Paperclip or Operation Paperclip, whatever you want to call it, unlocks the uh, the vault and, you know, this German brain trust. Theoretically, Werner von Braun and a bunch of other people come to the United States and start to upgrade the technology. And then when you look at that, people will say, well, gee, the Nazis just came to the United States and they turned the United States into the new Germany, which was theoretically the new Rome. Hitler was the new Caesar. And people talk about that. People on the left, don't kid yourself. They know these things. They talk about it. And they, they, and they are informed that this happened. And they, will, they have and they will use it in order to denigrate post-war America and the United States that the Nazis never really lost the war. They just moved to America, which I don't really believe is true. I think it's partially true. I think the, the bigger truth is probably that they went to South America and they're, they're in Antarctica. I think really that's the truth. And I know they went, I know they were in South America and Hitler went to South America. I interviewed Harry Cooper a long time ago, who is the foremost historian. He's lead tours uh, with people to go to Argentina and, and just discover, you know, where Adolf Hitler was living in Argentina. And they, they got out on these submarines that were uh, essentially lost, launched out of Spain. And these submarines went from Spain to South America. And uh, Mengele was in South America. So then they hightailed it to Antarctica. And they might have even been there before the whole South American trip. So... Yeah, there's some truth to the fact that the Nazi brain trust or the Third Reich brain trust, some of it settled here. But I would say probably the, the best of the breed, the ones that <clears throat> created like the Foo Fighters and, you know, this really, you know, way ahead of its time tech, I think, I think they went to another place. But that said, you know, the left or whomever would not hesitate at all to said, well, America's the new Nazis. But getting back to this idea that, that, uh, that these are the things that made this country great, like the sacrifices for those wars, I don't really believe that. It's not something I would hold up as a reflection of America's greatness. In fact, more than anything, I would hold it up as a reflection of America's ignorance. And it's due to the fact that they were conned and psychologically uh, manipulated to go fight in a war, both wars. And even World War I, man, that, that war was going on for a while. And we, we got into the war late in World War I. And the, it, the reason why is because the Zionist Congress had approached England and said they were going to end that war. And the Zionist Congress, Theodore Herzl, went and approached England and said, hey, look, we've got a way for you to win this war. And of course, you know, they, oh, well, gee, 
we could be victorious here. Well, what do you got for us? Well, you bring the Americans in. You bring the Americans in and the Americans will help you win the war. You'll have fresh bodies. And then once you win the war, thanks to us, these are neocons. These are the, these are Zionists. And the Zionists and the neocons are very, very similar. They're one degree of separation away. In fact, it's really hard to distinguish between the two. And all you got to do is just give us a little piece of land in the Middle East. That's all you got to do. And you don't need it. It's, it's a piece of dirt out there. Well, who has it? Well, Turkey has it. Well, we can't give you Turkey's land. Well, you can if you redesignate Turkey after the war. If you disband the Ottoman Empire and name it Turkey, and the land that theoretically Turkey has as part of the Ottoman Empire no longer belongs to them, you can give it to us. And that's exactly what happened. Because after World War I was over, they Turkey, by the way, was somehow on the side of the Germans during World War I. So they had to punish them. Okay, well, you're no longer the Ottoman Empire. And that was part of the deal. They wanted to get rid of those things. They wanted to get rid of the Habsburgs. They wanted to get rid of these um, empires that were not going to be part of the 20th century. And this whole, whole idea of fake democracy in nation states, that's where it really starts. And as they do that, this little piece of land gets freed up, theoretically, because the British are the ones that are, are making the rules and they're slicing and dicing the Germans apart, and they're really redrawing boundaries and countries. And that's one of them. And as a result of that, they give Theodore Herzl and the Zionist Congress Palestine. And they gave it to him. Here you go. Here's your piece of land. Thanks for helping us become victorious in World War I. So now we got a great story to tell our, our grandchildren. And so the idea was for the population of Western Europe, specifically Germany, to go occupy that place. It's like, okay, we have our homeland now. We have our right of return. We have our base of operations. Problem was nobody went there. They're like, we got it too good here. And we're talking about the, the merchant class, which springs up in Germany post-World War I, after the Treaty of Versailles. And they're doing real, I've talked about this before. They're doing really well in Germany, all of Western Europe, Germany, France, Maybe not so much Italy, <clears throat> but man, even England, but mostly Germany and France, they're, they're killing it. Haberdasheries, department stores, you name it. They're, they've arrived. They're, they are part of the, uh, the wealth in the upper class, if not by peerage, by, by means, by monetary means. So they don't want to go. They don't want to go to some fucking piece of dirt in the Middle East. It's like, why, why go play cowboys and Indians out there when, you know, we, we're just making money hand over fist here. We're, we're happy. And I'm not sure exactly how persecuted they were, to be honest. Although when it came out that the international bankers were behind the Treaty of Versailles and that they actually cratered Germany and threw them into this very dark uh, inflationary period. Um, not good. Not good. So, so the Germans became resentful. And then you had this guy 
who wanted to be an artist essentially strike their chords. It's like, hey, this is this is this is who did it, and this is why they did it, and we need to reclaim our sovereignty. And it wasn't just over like the Jewish influence, but over the international banking community. Now I have my doubts about um, Hitler's sincerity, honestly. I, I think that Hitler was probably controlled opposition. Everybody in his um, cabinet, everybody in the, uh, the Luftwaffe, um, they were either all Jewish or they were, they had Jewish uh, family members in their background. So it wasn't hard to link something like Eichmann to actually being Jewish. It's, it's a weird wrinkle in the whole telling of the story of the Third Reich. So the idea was, okay, well, now we're going to, uh, you know, forcibly remove you from Germany. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to, we're going to, we're going to set it up so you can go there. Right. And by the way, the Zionist Congress was behind this. They, they didn't want people. They didn't want people to be in Germany. They didn't want them to experience the fruits of their, their labor being higher ranking members of the merchant class. They were not into it. They're like, these people need to suffer because we need to get them over there. So what do you have? You have an entire war that's based and built ultimately on suffering with uh, the, uh, the outcome theoretically being this final solution. And why would you want to stay in a place like that? Why would you want to stay in Germany after that? Go over there. Go over there where we can repopulate this area and turn it into our land of milk and honey. That was the plan. That was the plan. That's what they wanted. And so was World War II a result of a, a merchant class's unwillingness to leave the comfort of their wealth that they had created? And by the way, the German people were part of it. They bought goods from those merchants. And I don't know what the relationships were like. If you watch uh, the movie Cabaret, Bob Fosse gets into it a little bit. Because there's a, a German girl and who is it? Is it a, an English guy? So there's Sally Bowles, the American, this German girl who's Jewish. And there's this American guy, I think, an English guy who falls in love with her. And she's part of this merchant class. This is, this is like part of the subtext of Cabaret which is a movie I like, and I don't like musicals, but it's, it's actually a fairly compelling movie in a lot of ways. So what happens after World War II? It's like, well, if you're Jewish, do you want to stick around here? Go over there. Go over there. And I think that's a big part of what happened during World War II. Whatever your take on the quote-unquote Holocaust and the atrocities, that happened during that time, and I'm not going to get into it today. But the end result was to create an atmosphere in a scenario where people did not want to, they didn't want to stay. It's like, go over there, you know, catch a plane, 
take the train, get out of this place. They, you know, they, they hate you here. The, all the, all the, you know, the psychic carnage and trauma is associated with this place. Go get a fresh start. And it's all part of this continuum. That's, that's what happened. It's part of this continuum. It started in World War I. The United States was involved in both wars, especially World War II. You talk to, uh, not talk, you go back, you read Patton's letters, because <clears throat> Patton was the guy who was essentially running Germany after the war. You go back and read his letters. He's like, I think we fought for the wrong country. Those were his words, because he was dealing with the Russians. He was dealing with the rabble that came into Germany very quickly after the Russians began to occupy Germany. He saw what was in Europe's future, and he he believed that the United States had made a grave mistake. He started to write and was in communication with people. And then guess what? He has the car accident. Very weird. He's the only guy in that car accident that they're not going very fast, by the way. And he winds up in the hospital, he gets paralyzed. And then eventually he dies in the hospital. It's weird. It's a very weird saga in Endgame for uh, George S. Patton. So we took a little bit of a detour today. I'm not sure how we got here, but it has to do with America. And it's those two wars that are often put on the mantle as the, uh, the trophies for the sacrifices that all Americans have made. And so this somehow qualifies us as having solid roots that it defines who we are. And that for me is hard to deal with because in as much as people really bought into it, what did they buy into? They bought into a fucking lie. They bought into a lie. Both wars should have, should have stayed out like we are now. Americans are buying into a lie and they're trying to, and, I, and, I, and they're using this whole idea with Ukraine by the way, I refuse to call it the Ukraine. They're using this whole idea of the Ukraine to drum up this weird fucking patriotism. It's like, I watched this woman on um, Tucker Carlson, this uh, was Barbara Salazar. She's, she's an embarrassment, a total embarrassment. And she is clamoring for war. And it's because she's got these neocons behind her and she's got, as a result of that, she's got um, backing from the same group that backs the neocons and backs the Zionist cause. And maybe that was part of her deal to get elected. I don't know. Let me see if I can find the video because it is just so fucking embarrassing. And I'm going to get to the to the Biden stuff. Give me one second here. What's her name? Salazar. I watched this last night. Okay. <clears throat> 
I mean, we're not going to watch the whole thing. It's like 18 minutes. But I'm going to play maybe about five minutes of this just to give you an idea as to where these people are coming from. All right, here we go. So things are changing very fast. For weeks, leaders in Washington told us that an American-backed no-fly zone in Ukraine would be unwise because it would amount to an act of war against a nuclear-armed Russia. As you can see, those views have evolved a lot. But in fairness, Congresswoman Maria Salazar Maria got Salazar. there first. Salazar is a longtime news anchor from Miami who a little over a year ago was elected to Congress. Okay, did you hear that? She now says, a news anchor from Miami. She happens to be Cuban, and she's a news anchor from Miami. What does that mean? She reads scripts. She reads a teleprompter. All right, let's let's watch uh, Ms. Salazar in action. That's on the Foreign Affairs Committee. A week ago, a reporter from the Gray Zone asked Salazar what she thought of a no-fly zone. Here's what she said. Do you support a no-fly zone in Ukraine? I, I, I support everything that has to do with punishing Vladimir Putin and Vladimir helping Putin. the Ukrainians. Wouldn't that mean direct conventional warfare with Russia? I don't know what it will mean, but you know freedom is not free. So you don't know what a no-fly zone will I, mean? I, I, if, you, if you have to shoot down Russian planes, I mean. Of course. I don't know what it will mean, but you know freedom is not free. Now, we made fun of that answer last week when we first showed you that clip. But now what we mocked is the consensus in Washington. We don't know what's going to happen. We've got to do it immediately. That's the argument you're hearing. At this point, no one wants to say it out loud, but it is true. At this point, a shooting war with Russia seems inevitable. How could war with Russia not be inevitable? Virtually everyone with power is for it. We remain against it. We think that joining a war in Eastern Europe will hurt this country. Though, to be clear, when and if that war starts, we will be praying passionately for America's total victory. Unlike so many in the foreign policy. That's exactly how World War II started. mean it. World War One and World War II started like this because there was a lot of resistance, a lot more resistance now probably than, uh, than, than now because back then people were adamant it's, and it took a long time to get into World War One. That's how adamant people were against being in that war. But that's, this is the mindset. Like once you're in the war, you're pot committed and you have to pull for your country. You have to pull for your team. And I've just never been able to go there. I have never been able to go there. If it was a just war, absolutely, 100%. All right, let's see if we can catch up with uh, this thing bat he's got on. But in the meantime, while the United States is still technically at peace, we thought it'd be worth asking people who are calling for war if they have considered in detail what a war would mean for this country. Congresswoman Maria Salazar was gracious enough to accept our invitation to come on the show. We're grateful she did. She joins us tonight. Congresswoman, thanks so much for coming on. Um, of course. Thank you for inviting me. By the way, I think she's drunk. You, you, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to know what you think, if you think she's drunk. Yes. So since you have called for war with Russia... How do you think that war, once it begins, would play out? I think that's a hypothetical question. I think that we should concentrate, Tucker, in what Zelensky asked Congress today. Which is I'm, to sorry, I, I, I'm sorry. Did you see that? I no, and to I'm, me, and I'm, that was like a drunk cadence. Let me just go back. She's had a few cocktails. 
so she can get loose on Tucker. Here, let's watch. Russia, how do you think that war, once it begins, would play out? I think that's a hypothetical uh, Hypothetical. question. I think that we should concentrate, Tucker, in what uh, Zelensky asked Congress today. Which I, is I'm today. sorry, Congress, do you see that? She kind of lurched into that last sentence. She's drunk. She's, she's had a few Cuba Libras. I, I, I'm sorry, I, just, I can't, uh, no, and I'm, and I'm in no way um, trying to cut you off, I, but I, I can't let you a lot okay. over that. You she's fucking drunk, look at her. She's pulling a Pelosi here. She's on TV representing her district and she's liquored up. Ed, we should shoot All down right. Russian planes. That's of course war. Since you've called well, for that, you are a member of Congress. I think. Well, you okay. didn't, I didn't say that. That, I think. that that was taken. Yeah, but that was taken out of context because I said, of course, that I know what that means. I was that 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 interview was not very well conducted, and that's why I'm here because I want to clarify my position. Okay. Okay. And my position is that we should not take not the no-fly zone off the table. But before that, that's two. We need to do one. And one is to give Zelensky exactly what he's asking for. No right. troops on the ground. Let's give him the mix and the S-300, what he needs to defend his own air, uh, airspace. So he right. will create his, no, his own no-fly zone. And that's what I think we should have done months ago. It's embarrassing that this guy, this president, who is under the bullets, has come to Congress to beg for us to give him something that we should have done a long time ago. Okay. That's let me my be let, let let me be clear. When you say we should give President Zelensky what he's asking for, he demanded today. I think you were there that the United States enforce the no-fly zone. But you, so you are for denying him that. Well, but he also said, and then we can give you alternatives. So since we know that that should not be taken off the table, and I repeat it, I do believe that we should go to plan A, which is to give them all the military weapons that he's asking okay. for. Okay. Because well, if I think we a lot of people sympathize with that. Let me just say, I think a lot of people who saw okay. President Zelensky's speech today and who've seen the atrocities in Ukraine feel deep sympathy for the Ukrainian people and want this to end. I'm certainly among them. But I'm wondering I'm sure about the implications. You are. So then I'm, I'm I think, asking well, you, me, so then finish. what should we do? So okay, let, let me, all let right, me, so when, what should we do then? Always and everywhere, She's especially drunk. for the US government. Is that not like drunken bar talk? You've had a, she's had a few cocktails and she's chiming in on the importance of world events. This is, this is what I'm getting from her. Or one of its elected representatives act on behalf of the core interests of the United States government. It's really super simple. So if the United States is providing let me, weapons, let me just tell you well, now me, that let me you ask you that. Hold on. Okay. If the All United right. States is providing weapons to one side in a war, how is that not participating in the war? Listen, I do, let me just backtrack and say that you say that we're supposed to be representing the American people. I represent District Number Twenty. They always do. This is this is a classic, fucking reroute and politicians doesn't matter if they're left or right they do this all the time she's rerouting the traffic to a uh, a different exit out of this interview where you have millions of cuban americans and i'm representing what we think we know that we we acquired peace through strength 
Look at what peace through strength. You lost your fucking country. What are you talking about? You lost your country. Your country got overthrown by Marxists, who, by the way, were helped by the United States. You did not. And by the way, I love Cuban people. But you did not win that war. And the peace that you achieved has to do with the fact that you wound up in Miami. And now you're part of the American dream. What happened in 1960 to Del Castro and okay. JFK? Stop. I'm sorry. JFK. I can't. I'm not going to take the anti-communist lecture from anybody because, of course, I agree with you. Oh, no, no, and by no, the way, I, and I hope that, that history... you're not speaking for, quote, Cuban Americans, but for all Americans, because it's not a racial question. It's a question of, of I'm talking of about national my, interest. I'm representing right. District Number I understand. 27. I, I understand. And we believe... But I'm just saying, right, I got okay, it. And so... I'm, I'm as against communism. Let's go. I think as anybody. But my question is... If we are providing weapons to one side in a war, I think it's fair to ask, maybe the other side would say that's an active war against us. And if that happens, then what next? And to not think about that seems negligent, but since you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I know that you have thought it through. So tell me your views on what would happen next. Tucker, we have been providing javelins and stingers and ammunition, and we're providing a lot of, of military armament. So what is the difference between that and the MiGs and the S-300s? What's the difference? I mean, Putin, uh, you have to understand that we okay. are, unfortunately, the United States has fallen into the Vladimir Putin's trap. He is the one dictating what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. He said, we do not want, we, we are imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And we and are so we're letting Putin control our behavior. Okay, so that seems like, that seems like a loss are. right there. Right, okay, but let me just ask you, because we believe, we don't need to have more evidence that Putin has bad intent, that he's evil. A lot of people believe he's crazy, including some informed people, including many Russians. So we know he's volatile. And we know that he's heavily... How many nuclear weapons, by the way, does Russia have? Do you know? Many. Many. Yeah, only About 6,000 is, is the guess. One is enough, that, and that's a fair answer. One a fair is answer. enough. So are we right? concerned at all? And then she repeats it after he says, that's a fair answer. She's very proud that she came out of that with not knowing how many, but many, and then the one is enough. That he might use a nuclear weapon against the United States. Is that a concern? Is that something that you consider as you recommend these of, of, of policies? Course. We're, we, of course that we're very concerned. And we're also concerned that he may be throwing a biological weapon against the Ukrainians within the next few hours because he cannot take Kiev or Kiev as he thought he was going to. So of course that we are in, in confronting a dictator. And it, but, but I think that we should put this into context and I thank you very much that you're giving me the opportunity. Of course. If we believe in the free world that this is just going to be the first or the last confrontation with a bad actor, we're in for a very big surprise because if but, but, we do not confront this is, this is total neocon bullshit philosophy. Total. Theoretically, what you want to do as a country, in my estimation, well, what do I know? I'm a dad on spring break. But as a country, you want to have some kick ass behind you. But, but you also want to be able to negotiate really good agreements and contracts with other countries. 
with this idea that if they fuck up and renege on their contracts, that theoretically they will pay a price on some level, whether that's an economic price because the country is economically more than sufficient, packs a wallop, or has military might. But that's not what you bring out first. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of the, uh, the Gary Cooper model of governance, although Gary Cooper was not, <laughs> Gary Cooper was a fucking whore. If you read about the stories around Gary Cooper, it'll blow your mind. Anyway, but the way that we think of Gary Cooper, right, the strong, silent type, but push him too far and, you know, he'll take care of business, ultimately. I mean, that's the model that we should aspire to as a country, even though this whole thing is beginning to just run itself into the ground and the system itself is uh, teetering and tottering just like the two buildings, uh, building one and building two at ground zero in the World Trade Center. It's, it's kind of where we are right now. But if, if we were theoretically a country running a public policy, that's how you would run it. You wouldn't be out front with the weapons all the time, which is the neocon strategy. You want to just saber rattle, not just saber rattle, but every now and then you want to be able to, you know, cut the head off of somebody. And that's what she's parodying. Like the bad actors, it's called preemptive strikes. Bad actors with strength, then we're gonna have China and Russia and Iran and Fidel and you and okay. Venezuela. Okay, and but Fidel who? Fidel's dead. He's dead. I'm not even sure his brother is around anymore. And Fidel, what fucking century is she living in? But, but the, hold on, hold doing. on. But, but if, and, and needless to say, I've made that argument, you know, for 30 years on television. The question is, are we doing it with all available risks known to the population in whose name we're doing it? So I'm asking you, what do you think the chances are, and I'm sure you've gamed this out as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, that Putin uses nuclear weapon against the United States in response to this? What would you calculate the chances He can, at? sure that we are taking that into consideration. But, but what do you think the likely, I mean, obvious. our viewers are, I'm sure, supporting you. I think most conservatives are on your side. And, but I just think they should know what the informed view of the likelihood of a retaliatory, retaliatory nuclear strike from Vladimir Putin is. What, do, what, what would you assess it as being? And I repeat, that's a hypothetical question. And I well, believe a that he will, not, he will not take that step if, starting today, the Biden administration will send the message that we are in charge, that NATO is ready to confront him, and so are we. And that is This moron is on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I'm sure the Republicans and conservatives, just, they just loved her at the time of her election. Oh, She's a woman and she's anti-Castro Cuban. Oh, they know all about communism and she's smart and blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, let's stick her on the Foreign Affairs Committee. She just checks a box, that's all she does. Here's the problem that I believe, I'm not sure if you share in my view, that you obtain peace, you obtain, you can, you can, uh, 
take the they take the all the power away from Putin if you show strength to put okay, so, so do you believe that terms. do you believe do you believe that's true so President Zelensky said yesterday that he is considering declaring that Ukraine would she almost looks like a dude too doesn't she she's got that big square jaw I'm not seeing an Adam's apple but man she's got some she's got some uh some dudeness about her not join NATO in exchange for having Russian troops withdraw from his country. Would you describe this as President Zelensky speaking? Would you describe that Zelensky as, can? Who am I to say what's correct and what's would you accept? Would you? Well, Zelensky. I don't know. You okay? I so, am going, so, but no, no, wait a minute. Hold on. Please don't dodge the question. Is him. that? Is that? Um, would that be an answer you'd be satisfied with if Zelensky made good on what he just suggested? that we'll agree to neutrality, we'll relinquish claims to Crimea, and the Russians leave, would that be okay with you? Would you consider that an honorable ex exit, or would you consider it a display of weakness? If Zelensky comes to the United States Congress and he says that this is the best path forward, we are no one to say something to the contrary. But I don't think he's going to say that. So we're, we're creating scenarios here that are hypothetical. No, no, we're not. He him, he him, so you may not be following this closely, but he has said that multiple times. So, of course, that and I outcome would, and I have that would spare it. the and deaths. That is up to of, him. Okay, but that would spare the deaths. And since I know you have great concern for the civilian population of Ukraine. I'd like to be in a relationship with her. Oh, my God, be a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. That would spare the deaths we all do. of untold thousands and preserve the capital city from being destroyed. So, would that be better than increasing the level of armed conflict in Ukraine, which would be a that's better outcome. For, that's for the Ukrainians. What do you mean? Decide. You're 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 an American policymaker who's imposing your views on Ukraine. And I'm asking you simply, would that be a better why not why not views. push well, let me, well of course you are. You're saying we need to send materiel, billions of dollars, arm the military. And I'm not criticizing yes. your position. I'm just asking you, has it occurred that many lives might be saved? if we were to encourage the, the peaceful solution that's already on the table, are you doing anything in that direction? If the Ukrainians want to go that route, they have the right to, and we are no one to say anything about it because they are the ones dying on the streets, and they're the Would ones you under And they uh, certainly are. They certainly are dying. That's right. I don't know, Listen, notice any members I of Congress that, or David Frum laying I, I down their lives. To. It's the Ukrainians. But think, have you, have I, you I suggested have, that? Tucker, I think that we have uh, we have talked about this point enough. I also wanted you to give me the opportunity oh, to. So now she's like, we're done. Look at him. Tucker, I think we've talked about this thing enough. OK, I'm going to stop it there. This woman is making <laughs> decisions, foreign policy decisions, where she's trying to get her constituency to back up her foreign policy decisions, to get as many Americans to buy into uh, her neocon bullshit. Ridiculous. Anyway, getting back to this whole idea around America, believe in the people that are not in positions of power Right. These this is the heart and soul of this country, and there are kernels of 
uh, truth and goodness and validation for this idea, this concept, this vision, this dream. And it's not perfect. It's never been perfect. And it may never be perfect. But that said, there is something about the spirit of the people. I don't care what color you are. Spirit of the people in this country, they're doing and have been doing everything in their power to extinguish it and demoralize it for decades. And if you believe in that spirit and you believe that this is what makes America great, and I do, I do believe that, then stay committed, stay pot committed, as they say, don't give up the fight. So I just wanted to go back and we're almost done. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, Harris and and Biden, which I'll try to, but I just, I know that there are a number of people that listen to this and watch this and may feel like, you know, I'm coming down hard on what they either believed in or still believe in. And so I just wanted to kind of round that up and try to bring it back to a place where, you know, we can, we can talk about it and, and I can honor the things that you do believe in and do value and that they're not dissimilar for what I believe in and value. We just go about it maybe a little bit differently. Okay. Um, let's get into this uh, stuff with uh, Harris and Bush as quickly as uh, Harris and Biden rather may as well call him Bush. So the, the big deal here is this is um, Miranda Devine. Um, she uh, she writes for uh, the New York Times, I'm sorry, New York Post. And the New York Times now is starting to cover what's going on or what had gone on with Hunter Biden, the laptop story, so here we go. It's right here. The failing New York Times finally authenticates the solid, accurate reporting done by our daily presidential tracking poll sponsor at Miranda Devine. The New York Times is a joke and a dumpster fire. Get your own copy of her solidly researched laptop from hell at the link below. So I guess she wrote a book. And now the New York Times is coming out and decrying, well, not decrying, they're not really doing that. They're validating what she said and they're validating the laptop stuff. Finally, well after the election, this doesn't bode well for Joe Biden, by the way. Once the New York Times, for whatever their uh, motivation is, once they start doing this, it's a snowball that can roll downhill, which means that they're getting to a point where Biden is going to become expendable. The problem is, is that they have Kamala Harris sitting behind him and her poll numbers are horrific. She is the least well-liked vice president since Spiro Agnew. And that's saying a lot because Spiro Agnew wasn't really that unlikable personally. I mean, but he was connected to Nixon. So they wanted to go after him. And that was, the snowball that eventually rolled into the momentum of Nixon being impeached. 
So there's some momentum here with this Biden stuff. I can tell you that it's going to happen. You're going to see more of this because the they want it. Biden is just not functional now. Whatever program they're running, he's just he's not functional. But they have a problem with Harris, who is not only not well liked, but she doesn't even know that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. She's really really bad. Again, whatever program they're running through her, how many. You know, the real Kamala or the fake Kamala, whatever. It's a bad program. So they have a real issue here between these two. And they're starting to leak these photos that they're doing everything in the stage. So they're beginning to disassemble this administration. Some of Kamala Harris's aides are leaving her. And these are significant. These are the right hand and left hand of Kamala Harris and uh, uh, being able to organize her, her daily and her political life. So they're, they're, they're jumping ship. And in the background, you have the Trump program running. And I said this on my astrology show at the beginning of the year, when I looked at the transits for the coming year, that October was a key month for this whole Trump thing. That's, that's when Mars comes into Gemini and begins to animate his son, his Uranus, and his true node. So the Trump story has not, the final chapter has not been written on Trump. And if they bring him back and he winds up becoming president, again, we're talking next level chaos. And I believe that could happen. And I'm not saying that from the Q point of view and all the drops or anything like that. I'm saying it because from a strategic standpoint, that level of chaos would be just a, an absolute work of discordian brilliance. Discordian brilliance. So for those of you who are holding out hope for this to happen, keep candle it. Just might. I'm not sure it's the best thing. But at the very least, um, it'll it'll represent something you've held on to and, and probably had some grief over. Anyway, that's it for today. I'll be back tomorrow with Gen Z. Uh, tune in again. Use your head to discern what's real, your heart to say what's possible. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Go drink a green beer. I'm Robert Phoenix. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.